Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 7th of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson. Myself, Brian Garish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, there's only one place to start, Mike, and it's with the leader of the United Kingdom speaking. Only he isn't here, but this is his message that I'm afraid the excitement's all over because Freedom Day's pushed back until July the 5th, so more over 50s can get their second jab. Uh, this was the uh, Daily Mail video with particularly uh, mind-numbing uh, music, but of course you see the graph in there, and it was followed with a gloat at the uh, uh, chaos in Portugal as people who've been told one thing are now told something completely different. So in this 30-second uh, clip from the Daily Mail, we've got both sides. We've got the fear factor, which of course the government is consistently pushing across, the fear of COVID, get those vaccines into people. Uh, we've got the chaos uh, alongside that. Um, what does that leave us with? It leaves us with a UK public, which is really confused, fearful, anxious, and even more vulnerable for the next level of lies that the government are going to produce. And what will the next level of lies be? Well, of course, uh, this week, uh, towards the end of the week, is the G7 uh, taking place in Cornwall near St Ives. Uh, and, uh, well, the road's apparently already prepared to be closed. Brian, there's all... Yep, signs up on the motorways uh, saying that around St Ives, the roads will be closed. Roads will be closed for two days. So this is to protect the safety of the leaders of society. Uh, yes, so let's listen to our great leader for uh, just a few seconds uh, while he discusses one of the main topics of uh, discussion at the G7. Uh, what we want the G7 to try to agree is that uh, in, instead of vaccinating the whole world by 2024 or 2025, which is the current, you know, what we'd achieve on the current timetable, uh, we need to get this done by the end of, of next year, by, by 2022. What, what we need, I, I think, is a, is a global treaty on pandemic preparedness. And to go back to the question, you, the, the excellent question you were asking about uh, the origins of the disease, we need uh, zoonotic uh, research hubs, we need to know where uh, but the, the new zoonotic diseases might be uh, arising, we need to have a global network of surveillance uh, for pandemics, we need to have rules so that, that there can be no interruptions of, uh, of supplies across, across borders, uh, so that we have secure supply chains for the things that we uh, depend on in future. Uh, and clearly we need to have uh, agreements on uh, issues such as, uh, as vaccine passports, COVID status certification uh, uh, and the rest. So that uh, little video was from The Telegraph, of course. Uh, but David, uh, maybe we could say welcome to you before Brian goes into the detail of some of the other media coverage on this. Um, he ticked quite a few boxes there. <laughs> he, was ticking, he was ticking boxes at a rate of knots. Uh, vaccine passports was mentioned. I thought we had decided as a nation or as a government not to do that, but we're going to impose it at an international level. That's interesting. Global network of surveillance for pandemics, rules, supply chain mo modifications and management. It sounds awful like an international government to me. Indeed. Well, absolutely. It ticked all the boxes there. But do you know, did you notice all the hand uh, signals coming in that he was on message? 
the thumb on top of the fingers. That's always a very positive sign that he's being serious. Uh, but I, don't forget the double cross behind him. Uh, the, well. the, the double cross behind him. And it all delivered in a language as if you were arguing over the future of his uh, public school tuck shop. But let's have a look at how the BBC presented it, because I thought they were on track, really. The label, the vaccine fascists in black, is a UK column label, but I think uh, it's an appropriate label. So here's the BBC, COVID, PM to push for world vaccination by end of 2022. We can't repair the potholes in the road. We can't get people into our hospitals. We can't run the country. We can't produce steel. We can't produce ships. But don't worry, because Britain is going to lead the global elite in vaccinating the world. Uh, so this is some of the things that said he was asking his counterpart to rise to the greatest challenge of the post-war era by vaccinating the world by the end of the year. OK, and uh, it'll be the greatest, single greatest feat in medical history. And uh, we're going to add and never mind the long term vaccine adverse reactions and deaths. And he's supported, of course, because party politics is long gone. He's supported by uh, Tony Blair creeping in from the background. And Tony said the reality is that governments are obliged to look after their own people. So they will always prioritise vaccinating their own country first. He said, you can't be absolutist about this. There may be some vaccine that we can ship out in advance for those poor people in the African countries. And he added, the, um, and he added that he backed Johnson's call for world vaccination and call for frontline healthcare workers, the elderly and those in urban areas to be jabbed by the end of the year. Uh, the reason for doing that is enlightened self-interest. I hope you're paying attention to the language, David. The reason for doing that is enlightened self-interest. It's not humanitarian simply. It's because it helps us to stop the disease spreading. So that's the, um, that's the line from the man, of course, who was part of the lie to the British public over weapons of mass destruction, but trust Tony on vaccines. Uh, well, you've got to trust Tony not only in vaccines, but also in vaccine passports, because David's saying that uh, he thought the country had decided not, that we weren't going to do that. But uh, clearly, uh, that has been the policy all along. And Tony Blair has now published a paper uh, on this from the Tony Blair Institute. We'll come on to that in a second. Um, so this is the message, uh, less risk, more freedom. Um, so he was on the Andrew Marr show yesterday morning. Let's just have a listen to a little bit of what he had to say. Mr. Blair, you've been advising ministers in public and in private. Looking at all the data you can see, do you think we're going to open up on the 21st of June? I think it's uncertain at the moment. And uh, the paper we're putting out today is, is saying we should really distinguish between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So both here at home if we, if we do have to adjust some of the freedoms because of the rising pressure from new variants, then it's important at least to ensure that those people who are vaccinated have the maximum freedom they can. And I think that could also be done for travel as well. Is it acceptable to turn down a vaccine, do you think? Unless you've got a good medical reason, my view very clearly is no. And I think that's why it's important to give people a real incentive to get vaccinated because mm. You know, if, if you are vaccinated, the evidence is absolutely clear. It reduces the risk of transmission and it reduces the risk of hospitalisation or death. So would you make them mandatory? I don't think you can make them mandatory, but I think and this is what we're suggesting today. By making it clear that, for example, if you are vaccinated, if you're double vaccinated, 
it should be much easier to come in and out of the country. And indeed, round the world, I think, you will find that countries start to distinguish between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So in Europe, for example, they're going to allow you to travel freely within Europe if you're double vaccinated. So it won't be mandatory, David, uh, but if you're double va vaccinated, you'll be allowed to do things. And if you're not, you won't. So uh, how is it not mandatory? I love the use of the word distinguish. It's not discriminate. We're not going to discriminate against the unvaccinated. We're just going to distinguish. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a job because you're black and or Irish or Jewish or something, but I'm not being discriminatory. I'm just distinguishing. Okay, so that was, I thought that was a beautiful piece of Tony Blair language. Um, and also, it just occurred to me, we covered this a little while ago, the stage three trials in the vaccines aren't up to 2023. So that means that the vaccination of the whole world is complete before the stage three trials are complete. And the stage uh, three trials include safety. Uh, that's absolutely correct. But of course, the stage three trials are already invalid because, as we mentioned before, uh, the placebo group has been vaccinated. So there is no con uh, control group for this trial. Uh, so it is no longer valid. Now, let's just uh, have a look at the paper that Tony Blair's Institute for Global Change has uh, released. It's called Less Risk, More Freedom. Uh, it says uh, restrictions during the pandemic must be as proportionate as possible. There is no need to impose full restrictions on people we know who we know are at greatly reduced risk of transmitting COVID-19. Uh, during the pandemic to date, restrictions intended to reduce the spread of disease have necessarily treated populations as largely homogenous groups uh, for which there is no distinction between individuals when it comes to the risk of being infected by or transmitting COVID-19. This means that tools to contain the virus have been necessary but blunt. We've seen national lockdowns, regional tier systems and entire schools shut down following suspected outbreaks. That's a very key point because they're clearly going for the children here once again, because they're talking about entire schools shut down as being a blunt instrument that uh, really you've got to only exclude children uh, who haven't been vaccinated from schools is uh, the narrative here. Vaccinations have changed this. Their effectiveness at reducing transmission, now proven beyond any doubt, uh, means that different people carry different risks when it comes to spreading the virus. Uh, well. I would like to see the evidence that proves that beyond any doubt. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, skewed statistics and so on. Uh, I'm not sure that that evidence exists, but let's go, go on. He said uh, the paper says, ultimately, the fully vaccinated are much less likely to infect others, approximately up to 50% less likely. Now, this language really grabbed me, right? Because, I mean, it's not so long that we've had advertising standards agency attacking companies for using this idea of up to up to 50% faster up to 50% fewer wrinkles up to 50% this is this is advertising language this is not scientific language right if they had said approximately 45 to 50% or approximately 50 to 55% fair enough but no up to means well zero is included in up to so keep that in mind, okay? Let's move on with what the document says. In this paper, we set out the digital health pass infrastructure that will need to be introduced to enable an individual to prove their vaccine status. This goes beyond the current NHS app, uh, and it, it involves a globally interoperable system of health passes, which is now required to allow citizens to prove their status in a secure, uh, privacy-preserving way. So that's uh, where we're at with it. 
Uh, David, the idea that vaccine passports were never on the agenda, of course, is complete nonsense. And when Michael Gove denied it, he was simply being untruthful. Um, but uh, uh, Tony Blair clearly feels that he is an influencer. He, ha he is going to have the opportunity to, to uh, drive uh, policy forward. And it certainly seems, as Brian's already pointed out, that Boris has listened. And this is absolutely a key part of this uh, G7 summit coming up later in the week. Yeah, so this this is this is two-tier citizenship. This is uh, a, a class and an underclass. This is subhuman people being defined by their vaccine status, by the paperwork. This is show me your papers. And it's all on an international scale. It, is it possible that it could be more sinister, Mike? Um, well, I'm not certain it is. And just, just to be purely anecdotal for a second, I have had a couple of people say to me in the last couple of days, or certainly since... Uh, they heard what Tony Blair said yesterday morning on the Andrew Marr show, um, that this is exactly the path that was taken in 1930s Germany. And this uh, is a very fair observation, I think. Yeah, I mean, this this is exactly how it's done. And the, the attack on the children is particularly sinister. I was just finished reading a book about uh, the chap, the, the Dutchman who was smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe during the Cold War and his experiences there. And one of the things he found is that the, the, the people who wouldn't worship the state, the people who, who didn't want to surrender intellectually to that, they were excluded from education, which meant their children were excluded from good paying jobs. And, and they were made an underclass via the education system. So the fact that they're going after the children in schools is, again, extremely sinister. Yes. Uh, but, uh, well, headlines like this, increasingly popular now. We're seeing them all over the place. This is The Telegraph. Why I'm disinviting my unvaccinated friends from my dinner parties. Kate Mulvey. This is just spectacular stuff from Kate Mulvey. All right. And uh, I, I've got a few quotes here from this because it's, it's outstanding. At the weekend, she, she writes, I attended a lovely outdoor gathering and... Uh, there we were, a gaggle of middle-aged women enjoying the heat wave, laughing about how to shift our corona stone weight gain and sipping cocktails in an enchanting pub garden. Soon, as is now customary, we were swapping our vaccination stories. I mean, that alone's pretty creepy, but she goes on. Apart from one friend, that is, who kept very quiet because she had decided not to have the jab. When it was her turn to reveal if she was Astra or Pfizer, again, just a bizarre... A form of conversation, um, then uh, uh, she, uh, she caught her, uh, she said she was neither actually. When she caught her incredulous expression, she explained she was against putting stuff in her body and would take her chances with herd immunity. The rest of us fell awkwardly silent and then changed the subject. But later I found myself fuming. I feel increasingly angry at those who refuse to be vaxxed. And this is, an ex this is an exceptionally strange psychological reaction. This is her friend who has decided, using her own autonomy, as to what medicines she should take. And this woman is raging at her. How bizarre is this? It gets worse. She goes on, uh, one great mate from university who self-medicates her anxiety with copious amounts of Chardonnay made me laugh when she revealed she, she, she refused to put nasties in her body. She and I in the same, are on the same page with most other things, yet COVID has cleaved a wedge between us. I have not returned her calls since. 
So her great mate has been cast into the outer darkness. She continues, another friend, you notice how many of these people there are. She's got, she's surrounded by these people who are refusing vaccines and, and she's very angry. She, she writes, another friend who called herself a healer but won't have the vaccine. Uh, I've done the research, she insists, by which she means she's read a few bogus pseudoscience articles online. Now, again, this is, this is someone who has not looked at the figures. This is someone who has not done the research and is assuming that someone else who says, I've looked at this and I've come to a different conclusion, must be looking at essentially garbage pseudoscience. Right? This is a worldview clash. This is, this is someone says, well, you must believe the state. And if you think differently, it must be garbage. And I don't need to know any facts about what research you've done or what you've actually read. I know the answer before I look. Um, uh, so she was offended when a mutual friend edged away from her at a small dinner party last month. Um, I know of another friend whose cousin in her 50s, very into natural health, watches all the documentaries on Netflix, takes health advice seriously, has fallen out with most of her family over their sensible decision to have the job. When I told her I'd had one, she said, oh, wow, you're part of the government's experiment then. I take it you're okay with that. I just breezily replied, yep, and changed the subject. She wants to meet up over the summer with her children, but I feel a bit weird because I know the conversation will turn to vaccinations and I don't have the energy to argue. Never negotiate with terror is something my mum used to say when it came to arguing with morons. Now, so she's telling here that she has no argument to make. She doesn't know the facts. She cannot debate and she doesn't want to debate the issue with her friends. She just wants to call them morons and terrorists and, and, and exclude them and move on. Again, this, it's a psychological effect I want to emphasize here. This can't be the only woman who's responding like this, the only person who's responding like this. This is the psychological effect of the fear-mongering that's been going on now for over a year. So she continues, uh, but vaccine-dodging idiocy comes in, all, comes in all shapes and sizes. Another friend has a 25-year-old personal trainer who runs exercise classes for local mums, but he's not having the job. Now, 25-year-old male, excellent health, the, the danger posed by COVID to this person, zero, nothing. So the danger posed by the vaccine, non-zero. So I can understand his decision. His logic is that he's young and healthy and doesn't want to be part of what he calls a live trial. Again, factually accurate. Uh, but one of his clients has breast cancer last year. Another has a parent who is shielding with a heart condition. We all feel a bit weird about the fact he wouldn't get vaccinated. And we're not sure whether it's okay to tell him so. So again, they're, they're considering using social pressure to try and force this man to have a vaccine against his will, against his better judgment. That's appalling. Uh, she concludes, sometimes I wonder if I'm overcritical, but while I'm ambivalent on mandatory vaccine passports, ambivalent, uh, which the government has now ruled out, well, that was a few days ago, they ruled them back in there, I feel taking the job is a social responsibility. Why those of us who are doing our bit for the pandemic except being put at risk by vaccine free riders? So why should those of us who are doing our bit for the pandemic except being put at risk by vaccine free riders? If the vaccine worked, why would you be at risk? This is an admission that the vaccine doesn't, doesn't protect people. Um, this is a collective fight against the deadly virus that is mutating faster than you can say, pass me the hand sanitizer. If we are continue unlocking, vaccinating us all is both a civic duty and a social necessity. It doesn't mention medical there, doesn't mention scientific, civic and social. Uh, 
which is why when I throw my next dinner party, if you've not been jabbed, you're not coming in. So she's now excluding from her group of friends everyone who's not um, followed her uh, decision that they should have a vaccination. What do you think of that, James? Well, to, to me, this lady, <coughs> excuse me, has um, fallen victim to the psychological attack that the government's unleashed. Uh, she's mesmerised. She can't think for herself. She is simply following the sound bites that have been put in her head about being vaccinated. And she's prepared to sacrifice people that she says are her friends. So what we can see is psychological damage on this woman. She's not thinking properly. She can't reason. She can't search out the information for herself. She can't hold a debate with people who are her friends. She, she's just cutting them off. So she's become a very callous individual. And the next step is, well, I don't care if those friends die or if those friends are led off into a camp. This is where her mind has been taken, and it's been taken there deliberately by the British government. Uh, but David, uh, you wanted to remind uh, us all that uh, it was the 11th of May 2020 when we uh, highlighted the Spy B uh, minutes showing that this was exactly what was going to happen. Yes, this is planned. What she's showing is exactly in accordance with the government's intentions. Quote, the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased amongst those who are complacent. And they then went on to talk about social pressure. Now, um, I, I would point out here that um, a, a sticker I saw from the, the White Rose organisation, I think, summarises the effect of this absolutely accurately. They write, a government that wages psychological warfare on its own citizens has declared itself the enemy of the people. I, I consider that to be an accurate statement and that we are at that particular jun junction now. Well, we, we can say that with total confidence because the government's own documents with a baseline document mind space from 2010 from the cabinet office said that the government was using and going to continue to use psychological warfare on the population so that they adhere to government policy. So the government documents are telling us there's no ifs or buts about this. Uh, yes, David, uh, we had a bit of video from the Dutch uh, Parliament. Is this the appropriate time to show that? Yes, we can we can cover that now. Yes, it's uh, it's in Dutch, but with subtitles. I don't know how you want to do this. Do you want to just run it? Uh, well, just just introduce it, David. Uh, so this is uh, Thierry. Oh gosh, I've blanked his name just now. I'm very sorry. I'll get that for you in a moment. Uh, he's from a, a, a Dutch uh, party that's sort of the equivalent of the AFD in Germany. So a populist right-wing um, nationalist party who who say unpopular things. Uh, he's the gentleman who um, uh, got the uh, the, the defence minister in Holland to resign when he turned up in uh, Parliament wearing a defective flak jacket that uh, the Dutch troops have been forced to wear in combat in Mali. So he's... Uh, He's able to stir things up a little bit. Uh, this speech was, I think, quite the best two-minute summary of the situation uh, regarding COVID I've seen from any politician anywhere.
Dat er een punt komt dat wij wakker worden. Dat we inzien dat dit een collectieve psychose is. Dat het op slot gooien van het hele land, de halve wereld, gedurende anderhalf jaar vanwege een griepvariatie krankzinnig is. Dat we rondlopen met die lullige, niet werkende mondkappen. Dat we ons houden aan die volstrekt onzinnige afstandsregels. En onze bedrijven, onze sociale levens stuk hebben zien gaan. Dat we prima eerste lijns medicijnen, zoals Ivermectine, tegenhouden. Alleen om die experimentele injecties de status van toegelaten vaccin versneld te kunnen geven. Dat we kletsen over, oh, de besmettingen lopen terug. Terwijl dit vorig jaar natuurlijk ook gebeurde, zoals dat elk jaar gebeurt. Zoals er straks natuurlijk met de herfst weer nieuwe besmettingen komen. Zoals dat altijd gebeurt. En we doen alsof dat door corona komt, terwijl wat we vroeger de griep noemden, schijnbaar geheel zou zijn verdwenen. Maar het belangrijkste, en dat zijn mijn afrondende woorden, dat we inzien dat met als voorwensel een of andere hysterie over deze Chinese griep een infrastructuur is opgetuigd die op elk willekeurig moment, wegens elk willekeurig voorval, opnieuw kan worden aangewend. Lockdowns, mondkapjes, afstand houden, niet meer reizen, geen handen meer schudden, belachelijke experimentele injecties laten inspuiten. Deze coronatijd was een gehoorzaamheidstraining. De Tweede Kamer en de regering Rutte hebben die training glansrijk doorstaan. Gefeliciteerd. Klaus Schwab kan trots op jullie zijn. De globalistische plannen kunnen doorgang vinden en de volgende stap richting mass surveillance en totale controle kan worden gezet. Dank u wel. Excellent summary. Isn't, isn't it, wasn't that spot on? A joy to listen to. And total surveillance and total control is where it's going. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, let's uh, move back to the UK then. And uh, well, here we go. Uh, the approval has been given for 12 to 15 year olds to receive the uh, Pfizer vaccine uh, by the MHRA. So the MHRA apparently concluded a positive safety profile for the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine in 12 to 15 year olds. This follows a rigorous review of the safety, quality and effectiveness of the vaccine in this age group. Uh, no new side effects were identified and the safety data in children was comparable to that seen uh, in young adults. As in young adults, the majority of adverse events were mild to moderate uh, and related to reactogenicity uh, as such as a sore arm or tiredness. Uh, so let's have a look at what uh, June Rain had to say. Here she is, uh, the lovely June. Uh, she said, we've carefully reviewed clinical trial data in children aged 12 to 15 years and have concluded that the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective in this age group and that the benefits of this vaccine outweigh any risk. Now, let's just remember, for children aged 12 to 15, the risk is zero. So uh, the benefits also zero. So I'm not quite sure how that statement is made. But anyway, let's see. Uh, we, have a place, uh, we have in place a comprehensive safety surveillance strategy for monitoring the safety of all UK-approved COVID-19 vaccines. And this surveillance will include the 12 to 15-year age group. Uh, we will now be uh, for the, sorry, it will now be for the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to advise on whether this age group will be vaccinated as part of the deployment programme. And you've listened to the words uh, uh, over the last couple of minutes. Nowhere in the press release or in the statements from June Rain or any of the other people that were quoted, was there any actual evidence provided? There were no links to any paper showing this uh, fantastic review. Uh, and showing the results of the review. It is not possible to know how they came to these conclusions. Uh, and so, well, what conclusion are we supposed to reach on that? Are they ashamed of the results? Do they not want us to know what the results are? Do they not have any results? Have they just put a, a tick in a box and said, this is done? 
Well, we can't know. So uh, June Rain, if you're watching this program, I suggest perhaps you might want to be a bit more transparent and open with how you're ar arriving at your conclusions, because otherwise there can be no nothing than, other than skepticism uh, to, well, to what you're saying. I think we're going to be able to get in deeper than that in the coming news programs, Mike. Uh, but clearly one of the things she didn't talk about was her own MHRA yellow card vaccine adver uh, adverse reaction data. That's not mentioned at all. And we, we are very clear that the MHRA does not investigate any of the adverse reactions that are logged. And this makes it very easy to say that the vaccines are safe because you haven't bothered to investigate evidence suggesting they're not safe. Yes, David. I've been obviously meeting a lot of people who have been, who have been vaccinated and I'm asking them how this was and whether they had any adverse reactions. Very often uh, they'll report uh, being debilitated with uh, fatigue, flu-like symptoms, etc., for several days up to a week. In one case, uh, the person reported uh, losing the, the losing the use of his legs for some time. Um, and each time I say, "Did you report it?" The answer is, has always been no. Did your doctor report it? Not as far as I'm aware. So. The, the idea that uh, the, the yellow card system is catching more than a fraction of the actual harm that's been done is, uh, I would suggest, not borne out by any evidence. Uh, indeed, and let's just remind ourselves once again that there have been two parliamentary questions now, one verbal, one written, uh, to the Department of Health uh, and to Matt Hadcock specifically asking about the number of people that have died within three weeks following a vaccination. Uh, the government is not well, they claim that they're gathering the data, but they're not giving that data out. Uh, but actually, the claim even was suspect. Um, so uh, the data is not being gathered. And of course, if you uh, don't gather the data, then you can't be expected to report it. And if you don't report it, then you can simply make any claims you feel like. Yeah, that's the plan. Well, UK Column's been uh, doing quite a lot of work uh, looking at MHRA and also the former pharmaceutical industry. Uh, this is a report that we came across in the last uh, couple of weeks, First Do No Harm, the report of the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review. This is a report that appeared the 8th of July last year. Uh, the lead was Baroness Cumberledge. They were looking in principle at two, uh, sorry, at three, uh, uh, three medicines and medical appliances, Promodos, Sodium Valprate, and surgical mesh. But in the document, they make a number of very important statements around the whole aspect of safety uh, with medicine. So if we just bring in part of her opening letter, print's very small, so let's blow a bit up. It says, this review, however, has been about people who have suffered avoidable harm. Our report is entitled, First Do No Harm, having spent two years listening to heart-wrenching stories of acute suffering families fractured, children harmed, and much else, I and my team thought it an appropriate title. It's a phrase that should serve as a guiding principle and the starting point, not only for doctors, but for all other component parts of our healthcare system. Too often we believe it has not. Okay, let's just go on. Here's the second page, and we'll bring this one out. The system is not good enough at spotting trends in practice and outcomes that give rise to safety concerns. Listening to patients is pivotal to that. 
This is why one of our principal recommendations is the appointment of an independent patient safety commissioner, a person of standing who sits outside of the healthcare system, accountable to the parliament through health and social care select committee. So uh, the bit I'm interested in is that at least there's a recognition that it's the safety of the patients that people should be listening to. The, uh, the suggestion that we're gonna get an independent patient safety commissioner, I think is laughable, but uh, it was at least recognized that uh, we should be listening to what people are saying about medication. And if we come into this part of the report, theme three, I was never told the failure of informed consent. So Baroness Cumberledge has to write a whole section about the failure of informed consent. Let's have a little bit of it here. Informed consent matters. It's the indispensable basis for the provision of healthcare and treatment by clinicians. And it goes to the very heart of the patient clinical relationship. The 2015 landmark case of Montgomery versus Lanarkshire Health Board held that obtaining consent needs to be framed around what information an individual patient requires, and that is, and, and that this uh, should always has been the case. Sorry, that, uh, that's the text in the document. Is the patient's right to be told what are inf whatever information they need and in a manner that they understand, not what the reasonable clinician chooses to say. I thought that was absolutely critical because what we are being told at the moment is that the advice is coming from reasonable clinicians. But this document says that is not the lead. The lead is what the public can understand. They need to be told what they need to be told and they can understand to make a decision on whether or not to proceed with a particular procedure or medication. So despite this guidance, it's in the um, NHS um, overall guidance itself, but despite all of this, the, U the UK government, the NHS and the MHRA continue to lie and mislead the public over vac vaccine safety because people are not being given enough information to make informed consent. So this continues. And uh, we're just bringing this one from the Express. I, I, I just didn't know how to phrase this because the headline, COVID warning catching coronavirus is linked to an autoimmune disease, scientists say. Well, actually, what the, what the Express is doing here is taking vaccine adverse reactions and trying to link them back to COVID. So you're deflecting from the vaccine adverse reaction and bring them back to COVID. And to get back on your subject, David, I just thought this was such a horrific picture from the uh, BBC, the expression of the lady on the left, a puzzled amusement, an element of disgust as she looked at the, uh, uh, the uh, camouflaged army officer or person lady that's delivering whatever it is. Um, you know, this is more fear, I think, from the BBC. So never mind the facts. Let's ramp up the fear, bring in the army for their camouflage, presumably, so the coronavirus can't see them. Uh, well, indeed. But, uh, David, it's not the army not just being used in, in England, but also in Scotland now, too. Yes, now, I was really puzzled by this because there's not much happening in coronavirus land in Scotland at the moment. We'll come to that later on. But... Um, I, I, it, it did occur to me what was really happening here. I remember back in 1993, uh, I was stuck in a little village called Blackford uh, because there was a huge blizzard and the A9 was closed and all the truckers had to come and stay in everyone's houses because they were all stuck in the snow. 
And then the, the army started handing out free bread and milk. And everyone thought, oh, it just got serious because the army are here to relieve things. And I think this is the message that they're trying to, they're trying to communicate. There's not very much happening in coronavirus in Scotland, but we're going to use the army because that will generate fear. That will generate the, re the reaction that there is a crisis. So here's the Herald reporting on it. Um, the army has been drafted into NHS Lothian in Lanarkshire that you mentioned just a moment ago there, Brian. Uh, ben Wallace here is um, uh, applauding this. It's called Operating, Operation Rescript. Operation Rescript. That's an interesting word. Rescript legal terminology uh, is, a, is a document that's not issued on the initiative of the author, but it's been called for by someone else. So that's what they're saying. We're doing this because you called us, not because we decided this is coming from the ground. That's what they're trying to say. They actually named the operation that in order to try and persuade people that this is what's happening, that there's a demand for help, a call for help. Uh, ben Wallace said, I'm delighted to see that across all corners of the UK, military personnel are working side by side with their NHS counterparts, interesting phrase there, to help get the British public vaccinated as quickly as possible. Not as safely as possible, not with the consent. It's all about speed. It's all about speed. I'll just pop up the BBC briefly here. This is the one that had Boris Johnson pushing for the world to be vaccinated. And I just wanted to highlight how do they... Uh, help this push is they produce the statistics they know are going to uh, frighten the public really. So top right, the total cases, 4,511,669. Yeah, but the, but the problem with that, I mean, the, the headline figures there, of course, are designed to, to scare people. But the, the problem with that is, is there is a disparity, David, between the headline figures there and what's actually going on at the minute. So 13 new deaths, 5,000 new cases. And uh, in the greater scheme of things, uh, I'm not clear how that justifies the position that we've heard from Tony Blair and Boris Johnson today. Well, indeed it doesn't. New deaths today in Scotland, zero. But we called the army in because it's a, it's a panic. So it's desperate. It's all about creating the impression. Uh, and this is against the constant drumbeat of fear from Tony Blair and all of his little friends and the entire press corps and it's constant and it's everywhere. The BBC are pushing it out 20 times a day and it has an effect. They're very good at frightening people. I mean, let's not take that away, but it's not based on anything real. Uh, no, but let's just have a quick look at the Scottish numbers then. So this is from the 6th of June, which is yesterday. Uh, 70, yeah, seven, sorry, go ahead. Don't you go. Okay, 775 new cases of COVID-19 reported, 20,675 new tests, uh, and 4% uh, of those were positive. Uh, those could be largely false positives, but anyway. What, yes, what's the false positive rate on that, on that testing? Could it be 4%? Perhaps. Uh, yes, very much so. And, uh, but don't worry, because 3,365,779 people have received the first dose of the vaccination and 2.2 million have received their second dose. So this is all good news, David. Well, yes, they, I think they are re, uh, meeting more and more resistance on the vaccination programme. So we'll, we'll see the fear and the, the concern and the drumbeat of uh, encouragement uh, continue apace. 
as uh, increasingly the people who have not yet uh, decided to get vaccinated have decided not to, and it's going to be the government's uh, objective to, to force, bully, cajole them into doing so, all of which is, of course, contrary to informed, voluntary, express individual consent. Um, a couple of other graphs from the Scottish stats uh, here I thought would be quite interesting. First, the, the, the deaths involving COVID. Now, the, the key word here is involving. We know that the deaths from COVID as, as the primary cause are very low, but the deaths where COVID was mentioned in the certificate or in some way um, associated or there'd been a positive test within 28 days, any of the ways that they record COVID deaths. So we see the, the big spike that came just after the lockdown in 2020. We see the, 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 the spike that came uh, in, in, when the, the vaccination programme was rolled out. But we see now it's gone back down to the summer level of basically nothing. That's the background. That's the reality against uh, which all of this fear is being hyped. The other graph I was really struck by, this is the claimant count. So this is the number of people claiming benefits in Scotland. And it alarmingly, it was creeping up from about 80,000 over to over 100,000 as we went from 2018 to 2020. So clearly the economy is not doing well. Um, your SNP policies and socialism and all the rest of it. And then, of course, when the lockdown happened, there was this huge jump and the, the, the number of claimants essentially doubled. Then it's not come down significantly since then. So all of the controls, all of the government artificial support, all of the money printing, we're a year and what, four months now into this, or a year and three months into this, all of it still remains essentially at peak levels. There is no return to normality shown in those figures. Uh, I think that's a, a start that we should be watching as uh, this unfolds. Uh, indeed. And, and David, just coming back to Tony Blair for one quick second. I mean, he was talking about uh, the obviously travel was the main thing that he was pushing there. But he was also saying that actually, if you're a, in the hospitality industry or you run a venue, you may well want to uh, require vaccinations there as well. And uh, I think that you should be supported in that. What's actually uh, happening there is that the businesses are being in a, in, put in a position where they either have to uh, deny access to a large proportion and seems like an increasing proportion of their clientele, or they're going to be, uh, if they want to allow those clientele to access their premises, they're going to be subject to a really horrendous bureaucratic and expensively, uh, horrendously expensive bureaucratic regime. Uh, and so, you know, what we see here, David, is a continuation to actually put uh, such a burden on businesses that they, they become unviable and they remain unviable, uh, well, until they go out of business, effectively. Until they go out of business or, or they comply. Um, increasingly, I mean, this, this, is, this is 1930s Germany once again. In 1930s Germany, if you wanted to engage in business, you needed to have a well-connected lawyer with connections to the Nazi party in order to navigate the bureaucracy. Otherwise, the bureaucracy would strangle your business. So what, you have, what you're going to have to have in Britain is compliance with government diktat, um, and it, it will get worse from here, uh, or, or we will strangle your business. And the, this is where um, some of the heroes go, you know, going forward here will be people who will be operating what will be called the black market, or as we will call it, the market. 
um, there will they will drive um, honest business underground, and they will drive free people underground. It's it's remarkable that, that it's being discussed so openly. And of course, from our dear friends at the BBC, there's no pushback. No one mentions medical fascism. No one mentions uh, destruction of the inalienable rights that this country was built on, that this country bled for. No one mentions any of that. Uh, it's just, oh, thank you. Thank you, former Prime Minister, for, for your, your wise words of uh, wisdom as to how we're all going to be forced to live our lives. Yeah, David, inalienable rights, that's just nostalgia, I think. <laughs> well, ideal, just to bring in another um, vaccine fascist, I think, if we pop this one on screen. Uh, here we are. It's our very own Matt Hancock. So the headline, COVID modelling has been crude and unreliable, NHS leaders warn. So you read that headline and it looks good, but there is a sub-headline. Let's bring this on to another one. Let's have a look at what seems to be true. Well, the headline seems to be true because uh, there's a lot of evidence that the COVID modelling has been exceptionally crude and very unreliable. And it's not only NHS leaders that have been warning about that. Many other scientists have. Uh, but when we get into the subheadline, it gets interesting. Government urged against using the models to decide whether to lift the remaining lockdown restrictions on June the 21st. Well, that's already history. Um, but that second headline seems to me to indicate that um, the argument was that you didn't really want the uh, thing lifted. So the government urged against using the models because they're unreliable to decide whether to lift the remaining lockdown restrictions. David, I had to read this Telegraph article about four times before I could see what they're actually doing. I'm going to try and explain what they're doing, but I'm going to do it very quickly. But um, do you detect a little bit of spin in the headline and the subheadline there? Yes, I mean, but I mean, again, you've got to say, it's for good. Having, <laughs> having a brass neck, you've got to give them credit. Our models that we use to shut down the entire economy, they're rubbish. So we can't possibly use them to open up the entire economy. That would be crazy and dangerous. <laughs> right, okay. Is that, well, let's... <laughs> is that your reading of what they're saying? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And it's brought a smile to my face because the whole thing's so bizarre. So let's bring in the one of the key spokesmen uh, in the article is Chris Hobson, the chief executive of NHS Providers. Now, we had him on, on the UK column. We were talking about him on the UK column on the 31st of May, where he said that very few COVID patients in hospital in England received two jabs. And uh, we just said, where's your evidence, Chris? Because there wasn't any in that article. Uh, we also had this one up where he said a handful of patients in hospital received both vaccination doses, but they usually, usually have additional conditions. And we asked where are the NHS and other statistics to support that claim because there wasn't any of that data. Well, Chris is the man the Telegraph wanted for the article we've just had up on screen. And he said that trusts were sceptical about the fitness of models to provide useful forecasts. So that's pretty good. Um, he also said this. Trusts uh, in Indian variant hotspot areas had not seen huge spikes in admissions and deaths and had coped well with many now seeing a decline. For the record, trust leaders are sceptical of the value of predicted statistical models here, given their performance of the last 15 months. So he's calling into question the whole of the modelling around COVID. But as you'll see in a minute, he's not bothered about that because the vaccines are great. Leaders, where are we? Leaders point to the crude assumptions that have been made and the huge shifts in the outcome 
if small changes are made to the assumptions. Well, this is pretty accurate. Uh, it was clear that even areas with the variants had been in no danger of being overwhelmed as predicted in the earlier models, with admissions and deaths never approaching the level seen in earlier waves. This is all good news. And on he goes, leaders in front wave, front of wave hotspots are now seeing community infection and COVID-19 inpatient numbers declining. And the last bit here, they feel they've coped well with this latest surge. Nobody wants to be too definitive at this point, understandably, but there is increasing confidence that in hotspots for this pattern of variant, vaccines have broken the chain between COVID-19 infection and high levels of hospitalizations and mortality in previous waves. But how does he know that if he knows the model in which was used to create the idea of pandemic in the first place was complete rubbish? This man is mesmerized, but he ends with this. Oh, sorry, I brought in the other bit as well. This confirms trial data and feels very significant. So the vaccine data is confirmed, but the modeling that the whole pandemic was based on was never challenged and there's no investigation of the yellow card reaction. Um, so uh, what else can we do? Sorry, we can bring in this one, David. Yes, I can see you. Uh, I'll see you, I'll, I'll bring you back in a second. So this is the Telegraph in, in the article talking about death modeling. You don't want to talk about people getting better, you want death modeling. Um, and it says that the death modeling the government used to justify lockdown was out of date. And they brought in this tremendous graph, which I had to do a bit of work on so you can actually read it. But you can see that uh, the graph used at the Downing Street press conference was talking about uh, sort of four and a half thousand deaths when the reality of the red line is way below, below a thousand. So the Telegraph even admitted that the modeling was rubbish, but there was no change made in dealing with the overall pandemic. So the models which informed the government's roadmap have been previously denounced for underestimating the protective effect of the vaccine. Well, hang on, we're supposed to be talking about releasing lockdown and wrongly estimating the number of people who have antibodies against the virus. So the Telegraph in this article is not talking about the headline, which is the release of the lockdown. And uh, the last bit here is they say this. They also failed to take into account that the effect of the warmer, drier weather and that of the vaccines would cut transmission. So, David, I had to read and reread this article, and then I realized that actually the article had nothing in it about the headline. So the headline was about the lifting of the lockdown, but there was nothing in the article talking about the lifting of the lockdown. It was promoting vaccines. Now, a couple of, a couple of that was tremendous. A couple of comments. One, both The Telegraph and Chris must have been watching UK Com. We reported on all of this. Um, when they came out with that model, right, I remember mocking them live on air that they had three models and two of which ignored seasonality in seasonal flu. And one only had it modelled to a very minor degree. Obviously, garbage. Garbage. And so it has proven. That's what we said at the time, that this would not happen. How did we know? Because we simply escaped the fear, and it's, it's blindingly obvious. 
Uh, I like the, the, the Chris's comments about uh, all the, the statistics that didn't and predictions that didn't that didn't work, and I really suspect he might have been watching UK column. Um, but I particularly like his little anecdotes, right? Because he goes and he says, well, when there's very few people in hospital with COVID, he says, well, there's very few people in hospital with COVID with, with uh, two vaccinations. Yeah, we know because there's very few people in hospital with COVID. And he says, well, there are some people in hospital with COVID with two vaccinations, but, but, but they've generally got other conditions. Yes, we know, Chris, because all of the people or virtually all of the people in hospital with COVID have other conditions. That's the nature of the problem. Uh, so he's taking things that we know to be generally true and presenting them as specifically true about the vaccination in order to justify his story on vaccination. It's deception. It's not very good deception, but it's deception. OK, well, we just end with the journalist from The Telegraph, Sarah Knapton. Uh, this is the lady. Um, she's actually quite kind on dogs. She's got quite a lot of a Twitter page about dogs and LGBT issues, but she sees herself as a book, a bookend. Is that the right description? So if you can't think anything to do with her as a journalist, you can put her up on the shelf to prop your books up. And I think that's about right. Um, so it says only two people have died with the Indian variant after full vaccination. We won't even go there, David, because we just need to ask her the the same question, why is she not reporting on the adverse effects? Um, now, I'm sure many people will have uh, seen uh, this um, from uh, Dr. Samuel White. Uh, it's been doing the rounds on Twitter and so on. We're going to just play a little excerpt from the video that he uh, presented in case somebody hasn't seen it. Uh, but uh, just to let you know who he is, he's a primary, or he was a primary care physician specialising in functional health and well-being. Uh, he uh, is a member of the Institute of Functional Medicine and uh, ILADS. Uh, views are his own. Uh, now, he uh, he pushed this little video out uh, over the weekend. I think June the 4th is when this went out. Uh, so let's just uh, briefly have a listen to what he has to say. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's uh, Dr. Sam. I just want to share a story with you today um, about how I came to resign uh, at the beginning of the year, really. Uh, I had a job for life. I was uh, a partner in a GP practice. I've been a doctor since 2004, so 17 years. Uh, the last 11 in general practice. Uh, also, until recently, working in the emergency department. And a few years before that, I helped run a palliative care hospice as well. I had to go because that was the only thing I could do, really, um, because of the lies. Uh, and the lies over the last year or so have been so vast um, it's been impossible to stomach or tolerate. I went to medical school in good faith um, because I wanted to help people and make a difference. And that's not what's happened uh, this year. And it's been as if um, my hands and those of many other doctors and nurses who perhaps have been afraid to come forward uh, have had their hands tied behind their backs. Uh, so. There are treatments available, safe treatments, proven treatments with lots of evidence to back that up, including treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, uh, which can be used as both pro prophylaxis and in treatment. Even a simple uh, inhaler called bidesonide uh, has been found to be affected by uh, a doctor who works in the emergency department in the States. Um, 
So what I'm asking today is that uh, you do your own research and I'm going to tag in this video um, a lot of doctors, uh, perhaps more eminent than myself, uh, who've done a lot of work exposing what's going on. So uh, there's quite a bit more to that, which is available on his, uh, I believe, on his Instagram channel, but it's being circulated uh, widely on social media, so you shouldn't have too much trouble finding it. Now, I have to say, uh, one of the positive things that I've seen is he's followed up on that, thanking people, lots of people, for their kind words, support and prayers. Uh, it really means a lot to me right now. Uh, I will do my utmost to reply to as many messages uh, I've received as over the last 48 hours. So the response has clearly been extremely positive. Uh, but uh, David, just very briefly, uh, the key point here is uh, one of the one of the things he was making, one of the points he was making, is the fear that there is within uh, the medical profession to speak out. Uh, now he's felt that he's had to leave his job uh, earlier this year in order to be able to speak out, or he's certainly decided to speak out through the have, being free of his of that obligation. But uh, lots of people fearful to to speak. This is exactly correct, and so many of the nurses we've spoken to are, the, are in the same boat that they they have to leave their post before they can speak freely. Um, this, this is extremely sinister as well because we're tying up the expertise, we're tying up the competency within an entire society and we're silencing it in order that the political agenda can be uh, rolled out without, without objection. And of course, the professional bodies are complicit in this. Yes, so um, let's move across to Canada then. and. Uh... We're looking at the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario talking about public health emergencies. Yes, yeah, so this is, uh, this is what they have to say on policies. Pol policies of um, the college set out expectations for professional conduct of physicians practicing in Ontario. Together with the practice guide and relevant legislation and case law, they will be used by the college and its committees when considering physician practice or conduct. Right, so they will be used to regulate the, the, the profession. Within policies, the terms must and advised are used to articulate the college's expectations. When advised is used, it indicates that the physician's reasonable discretion. Now, by implication, when must is used, the physician has no discretion. The physician must comply and there's no professional discretion allowed. So they continue, definitions of a public health emergency. A current and pending situation that constitutes a danger of major proportions within the, with the potential to result in serious harm to the health of the public. They are usually caused by forces of nature, a disease or other health risk, an accident or an act, whether intentional or otherwise. They are declared by government and public health authorities at the federal, provincial and municipal levels. So these can be defined by a city or town government. And when they're so defined, the, the physicians must follow the rules set out, otherwise they will be subject to uh, censure and removal of their um, ability to earn a living. So, policies. Under providing uh, physician services, um, it first says that physicians must be available to provide physician services. So if you think that the actions that you're being asked as a physician are harmful and you would rather not do them at all, 
that's not allowed. You must comply. Um, and then it says physicians providing direct medical care to people in need must do so in accordance with the relevant legislation and emergency management plans. So there's no ability for the physician to use his or her judgment as to whether these plans are correct. They must comply or face the consequences. Now that follows a requirement that they must do so in accordance with values, values principles and duties of medical professionalism. It doesn't explain what, what a physician would do if he was faced with a conflict between the government legislation and the dictates of medical professionalism. If he thought those two were in opposition to one another, he must comply with both. Um, and we then get to the warning that they've put out to their uh, members. The college is aware and concerned about the increase of misinformation circulating on social media and other platforms regarding physicians who are publicly contradicting public health orders and recommendations. Physicians hold a unique position of trust with the public and have a professional responsibility not to communicate anti-vaccine, anti-masking. Remember, anti-masking was conventional wisdom only a few months ago anti-masking, anti-distancing, anti-lockdown statements and or promoting unsupported, unproven treatments for COVID-19. Presumably those treatments just listed by the doctor we listened to a few moments ago. Physicians must not act to make comments or provide advice that encourages the public to act contrary to public health orders and recommendations. Physicians who put the public at risk may face an investigation by a CPSO and disciplinary action when warranted. When offering opinions, physicians must be guided by law, regulatory standards in the Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct. The information shared must not be misleading or deceptive and must be supported by available evidence and science. That actually contradicts the first part because they're not talking about um, evidence-based or scientifically proven or dem demonstrable facts. They're talking about compliance with pro-vaccine, pro-masking, pro-lockdown, pro-social distancing, or disciplinary action, which means we'll take away your license, you won't be able to practice the profession that you've spent your entire life uh, winning access to, and you can go back to uh, flipping burgers or whatever else you can uh, scrape out a living. Thank you for playing who has integrity. Uh, but uh, the government of Canada has some facts. Well, when it said vaccine in that little list, on the original website from the uh, CPSO, it, it has a hyperlink to tell the doctors that they're threatening all about vaccines. And this is what it leads to. This tiny little page, right? It says vaccines work. Scientific and medical evidence shows that vaccines can help protect you against COVID-19. Studies are also showing that vaccination, vaccinated people may have less severe illness if they do become ill. So we're now defining work as you can still get the, you can still get the virus uh, and it can still make you ill and you can still pass it on, but it might uh, help. So that's now the, that's the new definition of a vaccine that works. I thought that was quite interesting. Vaccines are safe. Only vaccines that are proven to be safe, effective, and high quality are authorised for use in Canada. Now, we know that the word safe is relative term, not an absolute term, so that's deceptive. It then says uh, mRNA vaccines 
uh, provide instructions to your cells to make coronavirus protein. Protein will trigger their immune response. It will help protect you against COVID-19. No mention of adverse reactions, blood clots, or anything else there. Um, so that's the link that the, that the College of Physicians are pointing its own members to, that this is what you need to know about vaccines. And I would say as a as a technical understanding of the problems, of the risks, of the benefits, this is garbage. But, but they're sound bites, David. So what they want them to do is to pick up and repeat sound bites. They're not interested in fact. Um, so right at the beginning of the programme, we had Boris Johnson talking about the G7 and this massive surveillance uh, system that they're going to put in place. Uh, the Germans, though, seem to have taken this to a, another level. Yeah, this is an update in May of, a, of an earlier report that we covered, I think, briefly at the time. New York Times here, German intelligence puts coronavirus deniers under surveillance. Um, so they're using the Domestic Intelligence Agency uh, and they're creating a new department to deal with extremism amongst what they're calling conspiracy theorists. Um, and it's a bizarre statements are coming from them. They say, our basic democratic order, as well as state institutions such as parliaments and governments, have faced multiple attacks since the beginning of the measures to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. So you see what they're saying there? We've, we've trashed all of your rights. We've operated in a way that's completely unsupportable by any statistical analysis or scientific evidence. We've, we've destroyed the economy. We've removed, we, we've engage in psychological warfare on our own people. And, and the reaction of the people is to trust the parliament less. And, and the people who are opposing the parliament's um, tactics and policies are pointing this out and are generating anger against the parliament. This is now an attack on the basic democratic order. So they're now painting it as subversion. Telling the truth has become a subversive act. That's what they're saying there. Um, and uh, so the movement called Querdenken, uh, the German for lateral thinking, and we'll have none of that, by the way, no lateral thinking for you, communicates and recruits over social media and has a large presence on the encrypted chat service Telegram, where its main channel has 65,000 subscribers, part of AFD, German right-wing populist party, that is also under surveillance. So they're surveilling parliamentary parties as well. That's interesting. What we, what we used to do to the Labour Party in the 70s in Britain. Uh, have allied themselves with the protesters. Um, so they're, they're linking it to the far right here. So if you, if you, if you think for yourself, you're far right now. Um, last August, when restrictions were relatively light, the deniers, the deniers, so uh, uh, um, echoes of, of Holocaust denial, right? The deniers drew 40,000 protesters to Berlin. While most were peaceful, even if issuing masks and social distancing measures, a small number managed to jump police lines and climb Parliament's outside stairs, a breach of security that President Frank Walter Steinmeier characterised as an attack on the heart of democracy. So they're trying to present a few people climbing stairs. This is not the Reichstag fire, right? This is, this is the, climbing stairs is an attack on the heart of democracy. Really? Is democracy in Germany that weak? Uh, the intelligence agency's uh, formal observation of the deniers group is the first step in the process that could lead it being declared unconstitutional and ultimately banned. Um, and uh, so they're then going to some 
uh, some, some academics to support this position of this dangerous far-right extremism. That's where we're going in Germany. Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you for that, David. Yes. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, but also share on the various platforms, uh, uh, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey uh, for video and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, just mention uh, that uh, obviously Stand Up X, one of the uh, organizations campaigning against uh, vaccine passports and so on, uh, I'm just highlighting their particular website here, but this information is elsewhere as well. Uh, making the point that the next big uh, event, which is taking place, anti-lockdown event, is taking place in London on Saturday, the 26th of June at 1 p.m. Indeed. Yes. Anyway, uh, and now just one other thing. Uh, I want to mention uh, uh, this story. If you remember, Alex Thompson was uh, highlighting the story of Mary and Mikey, and there was a bit of a a fundraiser to try and get uh, young Mikey his uh, his uh, toys and so on from storage in the UK over to the Netherlands. Uh, if you remember, that uh, uh, resulted in a uh, crowdfunding exercise on one of the platforms that was taken down by the platform, and then people were given uh, a bank account to uh, to redonate if they wished. Uh, and then, if you remember, the uh, bank account was uh, frozen. Uh, well, I'm glad to say that that has now uh, been dealt with and in fact uh, there's been a statement made or at least a statement made to to Mary uh, from the or for, to, to the person who was running the bank account uh, from the uh, from the bank and they said following our most recent telephone call I can confirm all restrictions on the account on the accounts and online banking have subsequently been lifted and accept my sincere apologies on behalf of nationwide so it seems that nationwide have finally uh, come round, they've released the money and that will uh, that will progress. So thank you very much once again to everybody that donated. It's that's, just, that's a bit of peop people power, I, I think, in I, there. I think, that, uh, I think that is the case, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on. Just a few emails sent into the UK column. This one I thought was delightful. It came all the way from Australia. Uh, so this is a statement from the Hon Honourable James Molino, Acting Premier of Victoria State Government. And this is a couple of pages on the new um, uh, freedoms. I was going to say lockdown, but it, of course they're freedoms. And I just pulled out this paragraph because I thought it was so beautiful. Public gatherings catching up at a public place like the park or the beach will be increased to 10 people. If there's only 10 of you in a park or on the beach, there's no coronavirus. That's really good. Uh, restaurants and cafes can reopen to a maximum of 50. So clearly the coronavirus prefers beaches and parks. Uh, and then we've got this one, religious ceremonies and funerals will be capped at 50, weddings at 10. So that virus knows where there's good food and drink and it's in there with, you know, woof, let me get into the wedding. Whereas if it's a funeral, no, I'm not so keen. I've already done my job. Uh, I'm not going to the funeral. Um, you read this complete and utter nonsense. And I'm going to say thank you very much to our Aussie brethren for sending this over for the Poms to read and we're with you really. Um, we've got this one here. This is more serious. You may have seen this document already, put, um, already, but an NHS nurse friend shared it with me. She's been asked on numerous occasions to take the injection, which she refuses. Another friend who's also worked in the NHS has been harassed non-stop. So there's the description. They're being harassed and bullied to take the vaccine. Uh, we've got people picking up on the, the uh, censorship, which is, is becoming very overt now. 
So this is Twitter um, uh, refusing to publish something until they told you that it hadn't fact-checked too well. So they don't want to see stuff talking about President Trump. But uh, I was just interested to see somebody put this. And this one very, um, I'm going to say this is a very sad email. And we're going to say to the person, if you're watching, um, we're going to encourage you to uh, reach out and get in contact with more UK column viewers. Is there any real hope for the future? I'm very tired and completely exhausted with COVID propaganda and fighting for my rights. I've lost friends who do not contact me because of my anti-vax opinions. Indeed, recently I had to fight my mother's doctor who said it will take my decision to not vaccinate my mother as neglect. So this is a very personal email from somebody who's really suffering as what's going on. And this is where we say as UK column, um, we need to stick together. We need to show love and human kindness if we're going to help people who are finding these times very tough. But our message for the person who sent that uh, email in is chin up, reach out to the UK column uh, viewers and listeners, and I'm sure we can improve your situation. I've got another one here, which was uh, very different. This is come from afar, the Great Barrier Island, New Zealand. Thank you for the work you're doing. My wife and I have been following you for almost a year. We're very quickly of the opinion that something was wrong in the pandemic. You asked in one episode about where people were tuning in from. I believe we may, uh, we may be the most distant. We live on a small island off the east coast of Auckland, New Zealand. It's called the Great Barrier Island. We're fully off-grid, generate our own power, collect our own water, etc. But we now subscribe to the UK column. So well done to... Uh, uh, sorry, what is it? Great Barrier Islands. And if you're wondering what sort of life these people are living, well, David, it looks good to me. What do you think? It does look like rather wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah, it's sort of like Harris, but with sunshine. Indeed. Um, I was going to. I was going to ask, can we all go there? But perhaps there's uh, perhaps there's quarantine required at the other end. Who knows? Well, I don't know, but it is good to know that uh, people operating a generator are busy tuning into the UK column. So thank you very much for that. Um, it's uh, nearly a quarter past two. What are we going to do? I think you've got an important section, Mike, and I think we ought to be saying to our audience that it needs to be covered. Okay. And uh, we're going to be sticking on this case. And albeit late in the day, we'll <coughs> excuse me return to it. Uh, okay, well let's let's just uh, remind everybody uh, of the online safety bill uh, because that is uh, currently in draft. It'll soon be presented to Parliament and will begin its uh, process through Parliament. But there are issues with it. Um, so um, various things not very well defined. So this applies mainly to Category One platforms. There are also Category Two platforms, but Category One platforms are things like Facebook. Uh, uh, Twitter and so on, YouTube and so on. It applies to services in the UK, or it applies to services where it has where they're accessed from the UK. So global services, which means the government is attempting to make this apply uh, to some degree at a global level. Uh, it's going to create this new regulator in the form of Ofcom. Now we have uh, commented on Ofcom quite a lot on this program, mainly staffed at a senior level by former BBC people. Uh, of course, it manages the uh, telecoms industry, but it also manages the broadcast uh, TV and radio industry uh, and will now be uh, managing the internet as well. Uh, there is, as we mentioned before when we covered this, plenty of room for scope creep because uh, almost 
every clause has something about the minister, the minister, the secretary of state can, through secondary legislation, do all kinds of things. Okay, now it creates a duty of care in uh, the, on various platforms in line with the government's response to the online harms white paper. All companies in scope will have a duty of care towards their users so that what is unacceptable offline will also be unacceptable online. But of course, the point that we've made before is it's already unacceptable offline. There's already legislation in place to prevent all kinds of things, including child abuse. Um, so this notion that uh, this legislation is required to deal with online child abuse is uh, in itself nonsense. Um, and uh, But the duty of care goes on to say the largest and most popular social media sites, which are uh, category one services, will need to act on content that is lawful but still harmful. This term is not defined, this idea of lawful but still harmful. Or the definition is so woolly that in fact it could literally mean anything. So we'll come on to that in a second though. Um, the duty of care goes on to say the draft bill contains, or the, the, the release that went with the draft bill said it contains reserved powers for Ofcom to pursue criminal action against named senior managers whose companies do not comply with Ofcom's requests for information. This is uh, going to have a chilling effect because we're talking about criminal action against individuals. Now, we think this in, in principle is a very good thing in certain ways, but if this is being used purely to implement or to bully companies into uh, adhering to what is otherwise a pretty disgraceful policy, then, uh, that, well, we've got to have a discussion about that at the very least. The bill will ensure that people in the UK can express themselves freely online and participate in plurist, pluralistic and robust debate, but only if they don't mention vaccines, only if they don't mention uh, COVID-19 and a whole range of other topics that they're not allowed to mention. Um, people using the platforms will need to have access to effective routes of appeal for content removed without good reason. But if it doesn't get put back, uh, they can appeal to Ofcom, but not in order to get a resolution. These Complaints would form an essential part of Ofcom's horizon scanning, research and enforcement activity. In other words, uh, mainly for data gathering and uh, radar, sort of Ofcom's radar, if you want to put it in those terms. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the issue of democratic content. Uh, ministers have added new and specific duties to the bill for Category 1 services to protect content defined as democratically important. In other words, content which is important to the government of the day or to discussion around uh, that, uh, for example, during elections and so on. Uh, but then we come on to the issue of journalistic content. Now, it does say that uh, news publishers' websites are not in scope. Uh, that includes both their own articles and user comments uh, to those articles. Uh, and it goes on to say, however, that articles by recognized news publishers shared in, on InScope services will be exempted. There is, again, a little bit unclear as to what a recognized news publisher is. Uh, it's undefined properly. Uh, and uh, then companies will have a statutory duty to safeguard UK users' access to journalistic content shared on their platform. So if you're a recognized news publisher, i.e. the BBC, as I, I guess, but to what degree does that extend? Does that extend to uh, pseudo alternative companies like uh, like Vice or the Canary? Or does it extend right the way to uh, the UK column, for example? I, I think we can guess the answer to that, but it's not clear in the legislation. Um, it goes on to say, uh, they will have to consider the importance of journalism when undertaking content moderation. And then it goes on to say citizen journalist content will have the same protection as professional journalist content. But again, it's vague. 
It's not clear. There's all kinds of links from one section of the, of the bill to other sections of the bill. And what is the definition of a citizen journalist? Uh, now, I believe that the definition of a citizen journalist in this case is Bellingcat uh, and the likes of Bellingcat. Uh, you and I, uh, David, would not be considered uh, citizen journalists. So let's have a look at what the House of Lords uh, has said about this, uh, because they wrote to the uh, uh, Secretary of State. Uh, and I'm just going to give a couple of examples from their letter to sort of give a, a, an idea of how vague this legislation is at the minute. Uh, clause 46 of the draft bill states that its provisions on legal but harmful content on Category 1 platforms apply where, quotes, uh, the provider of the service has reasonable grounds to believe that the nature of the content is such that there is a material risk of, co of the content having or indirectly having a significant adverse physical or psychological impact on an adult of ordinary sensibilities. It is unclear, says the House of Lords Committee, uh, Communications Digital Committee, it is unclear what the draft bill means by ordinary sub-sensibilities. It is even less clear uh, when uh, read in conjunction with subsection four, which specifies that in the case of content which uh, may reasonably be assumed to particularly affect people with a certain characteristic or combination of characteristics, or to particularly affect a certain group of people, the provider is to assume that the adult possesses the, that characteristic or combination of characteristics or as a member of that group, as the case may be. So, David, you know, this is, this is indicative of, the, of the, the style of the bill and the content of the bill. Uh, it seems to me that this is deliberately uh, obfuscating the purpose of the bill and the, and the extent and the scope of the bill. Things remain vaguely defined or undefined uh, and the language is convoluted uh, to, to the degree where even somebody with significant legal training is going to find it difficult to unpick all the various uh, 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 directions and, and possibilities within it. Um, so, you know, th this reminds me a little bit of Name Person. I think uh, you've mentioned this to me in the last couple of days. Um, you know, how do we get to the bottom of what this actually does? Well, this is a challenge. You see, name, name person was defeated by the people who got to the bottom of what it actually did. Uh, and it took um, months, even years of, of, of painstaking research to actually unpick it. When it was all uh, being assessed by a highly trained QC, uh, Aidan O'Neill QC, he found it vastly difficult to actually define what the thing actually was. He said it was trying to nail fog to the wall because whenever he attacked one aspect of it it would it would kind of well, no, but it's actually worth something else now um it's it's about child protection okay let's look at child protection well it's not about child protection it's about something else and it constantly moved and it became um it became extremely difficult to define it and pin it down. Now, it was eventually nailed, but it took a great deal of work from a great deal of very dedicated people to do that. Um, yes, indeed. So, so this is uh, really leaving us, we, we understand some of the basics of it. We understand that even what we do understand with it is going to have a very chilling effect on freedom of speech and uh, online and so on. But I think we're going to um, ask for some assistance here now. Uh, I suspect that other people that you might ex otherwise expect to be very vocal on what's going on with this are in the same boat because there aren't very many, uh, haven't seen very much, much commentary online about it yet. Uh, and I think a lot of people are taking quite a bit of time to try to get a handle on it. So we'd actually like to hear from anybody that is 
doing any work on this, or if you're legally trained and you would like to uh, have a look at, and, and work with us on this, we'd be very, very keen to hear from you. So uh, please do get in touch uh, via the contact form on the uh, UK Column website uh, if you'd like to get involved. And we, we just reinforce the fact that we see this exceptionally dangerous. This can be the mechanism by which the UK Column and other platforms are shut down. And of course, if that happens, we can't be warning about all these other areas. So we regard this as a prime threat to free speech and we need some help in untangling the legalese in that document. Yes. Okay, David, uh, we'll just end uh, with, with this one, our final slide for today. Yes, um, this is, uh, I think, a good summary of where we are with COVID. We've got uh, uh, Andy in red from uh, uh, um, the Shawshank Redemption, sitting, sitting, sitting in, in jail, and uh, one says to her, what are you in for? Uh, and the answer is, I didn't wear a mask in Tesco. Uh, you? And I actually can't quite see how it could work. It says I travelled to Portugal for a week's holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so um, yeah, that's that's where we're heading uh, in in uh, comedy. There is often truth. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, that's it. A long news today, but very important things unfolding. A uh, few people in the chat box noticed, of course, that if you want to protest the G seven, uh, you've got to come out of Cornwall. You've got to cross the Tamar and into Plymouth, where you're going to be allowed to go into a protest pen to protest as those leaders decide to vaccinate the world. Um, we're not making this up. We're still smiling, but uh, that's the best we can do at the moment. Uh, we'll but, be back. Sorry, I was just going to say we'll be back in 10 minutes or so on the, on the uh, UK Column live stream with some extra. And uh, we'll just say for the UK Column, looking into the future, we are going to need more muscle to do what we do. So if you're a viewer who are still not subscribed, please do come on join us and become a subscriber because we need your financial support to take UK Column into a position where we're capable of standing up and fighting for ourselves. I'll leave you all to think about that. See you in a few minutes. Thank and you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.